The following sermon was recorded from the worship service of Iowa Falls Evangelical Free Church. May God use the reading and preaching of His Word to accomplish His purposes in your life. Thanks for listening. Uh, Speaking of family, we're going to be talking a little bit about family today. If you have a Bible with you, I invite you to open up to Deuteronomy chapter 6. We're going to be doing in the second service uh, a a dedication. Um, And so... Uh, that's going to be happening just in the second service, not in this one. Um, but this kind of message will really lead into that well. And I think uh, super applicable for all of us, no matter what life stage we're at. You know, if you asked people in the world around us, what is the definition of the good life? How do we know if we're living the good life? I think the world around us would say right now something like this. The good life is when one is free to do whatever you want to do and be whoever you want to be. And if that's the definition of the good life, then what we need to be doing with the next generation, according to this worldview, is is that we need to be telling them that pretty much everything is acceptable and, and we need to be empowering and enabling them to be and do whoever they want to be and do whatever they want to do. I think that's what the dominating worldview in our world is today. And this is a message, because it's so entwined in our worldview today, that our kids are hearing repeatedly. It's woven into curriculum in our public schools, and if you, like our family has, choose to educate your kids in that way, they're spending like 35 hours a week in that environment. This message of what the good life is, according to the world, comes at them through screens that display everything from Paw Patrol to Disney to Marvel to TikTok to Snapchat to pornography to YouTube, whatever. You can get anything on a screen. And this worldview comes at our kids through screens. And maybe you limit your, hopefully you limit screen time uh, when it comes to your children, maybe even to like an hour a day. That's still seven hours a week. That's a lot of input from a screen. And again, the message that I think we're hearing in the world around us today is you are living the good life if you are free to do and to be whoever you want to be. And the message coming to them is we want to empower and enable you as kids to do whatever you want to do and be whoever you want to be. Now, the question we should ask as Christians is, well, is the world right? Is that really what the good life is? Is that message then really what the next generation needs to hear repeatedly? As Christians, we don't think so. And so maybe you can even say like an amen to what I've said so far, but here's what I'm concerned about, church. I'm concerned that we're not doing enough to overcome the hours of worldly messaging that our kids are taking in on a, on a daily basis. We do have some things going on as a church. We have great Sunday school teachers. They're in other rooms right now. Um, And they've got some great curriculum that they're using. But I don't think 55 minutes per week is going to be enough to shape a biblical worldview in our kids. We do have a great Awana program where a lot of the kids in it are spending about an hour a week doing homework on Awana, an hour a week at Awana itself. But that's not going to be enough to prepare our kids for a life of faithful service to Jesus. We have great youth groups. Middle school meets on Wednesday. High school meets on Sunday. But less than two hours a week together is not going to be enough for our teenagers to become young men and women 
who reject the lies of the world and embrace the truth of Scripture. None of that's enough. Now, what do we do? Like, do we add one more church program? Would one more church program, maybe one more hour, that would maybe do the trick. Would that be it? Maybe, maybe, I mean, we are looking at an associate pastor who would spend 20 to 25 hours a week kind of directly shepherding this next generation. Will that do the trick? I don't think so. I think we need more than that. And I think I get that idea from what Scripture has to say. And so today we're taking a break from our series in Nehemiah, and there's going to be some ties between what we've been looking at in Nehemiah and what we're going to see today as we prepare for a a child dedication here in the second service. We're going to be looking at Deuteronomy chapter 6. So if you have your Bible, uh, Deuteronomy is basically kind of a farewell sermon series from Moses. Moses, the author of the first five books of the Bible, uh, who is about to die as the people are about to enter into the promised land. And he shares kind of the second giving of the law or the book of Deuteronomy, a sermon series, as a farewell to the people. Reminding them of this. Here's how you can live the good life in the land that you're about to enter. So we're going to kind of hear a different definition of the good life according to Scripture than we hear from our world today. So if you have a Bible with you, we're in Deuteronomy chapter 6. And if you're able to, would you stand as we read Deuteronomy 6, verses 1 through 9. First we'll pray, Father, I just confess it is really easy for us, kind of swimming in the pool of this world, to be kind of overcome with and saturated with the messaging of this world. But I thank you that in your word, you say that we are not to be conformed to the pattern of this world, but that we are to instead be transformed by the renewal of our mind. We know the primary tool for for that is your spirit working through your word in our lives. So I pray that that would happen now, that our minds would be reshaped and reformed and transformed, that we might be people who are more and more molded by your word. Please do that now by your spirit, for your glory, in the name of your Son. Amen. Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 1 through 9, God's word says this. Now, this is the commandment, the statutes and the rules that the Lord your God commanded me to teach you, that you may do them in the land to which you are going over to possess it, that you may fear the Lord your God, you and your son and your son's son, by keeping all his statutes and his commandments, which I command you, all the days of your life, and that your days may be long. Hear therefore, O Israel, and be careful to do them, that it may go well with you, and that you may multiply greatly, as the Lord, the God of your fathers, has promised you, in a land flowing with milk and honey. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. Amen. You can be seated. 
Inside your bulletin is a sermon notes page, and that's followed by a life group guide. And again, invite you to jump into one of our life groups that are just getting started. And if you're unable uh, to join a life group at this point, you can still use that guide in your own home, either on your own or with your family. Well, just a quick bit of context uh, to set the stage because we're jumping into the middle of a book. Like I said, basically Moses' farewell sermon. Moses had written the first five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. So he started in Genesis with creation, with God, and then with God's creation, God's covenant with Abram, the slavery of the people in Egypt, God's rescue of his people from slavery in Egypt, and the giving of the law through Moses, followed by 40 years of wandering in the wilderness, and now we're at the end of that time. They're about to enter into the land that God had promised to them, uh, according to Moses here, uh, often a, a phrase often used in Scripture, a land flowing with milk and honey. They were wandering in the wilderness. God had provided for them every step of the way, but it was about to get a whole lot better as they entered into this promised land. So that's the the context of this. The theme of the book really becomes pretty clear. If you look um, even back, started kind of go through where we've been in, well, we haven't been there, but if I read through uh, this week, the early part of Deuteronomy, and what happens is Moses is kind of reviewing the story of God's relationship with his people as they've walked through the wilderness and camped for the last 40 years. It's again a story like we heard in Nehemiah, a story of their repeated sin and God's continued mercy and provision for them. So that's what we see early in Deuteronomy. And then in chapter 5, it's a reiteration of the Ten Commandments, which we originally see back in the book of Exodus, but he's reiterating that again in Deuteronomy chapter 5, saying if you want it to go well with you in this land, If you want to live the good life in the land that God's providing, here are some commands for you to obey. Now, we know from reading the rest of Scripture that they're going to fail. We actually just saw that in Nehemiah over the last couple weeks. As he looked back at the history and said, they they said they were going to obey God's law. God was good enough to give them a law to say, this is how you live the good life in the land that I've provided. Yet they willfully, repeatedly disobeyed God's law. So so we know that they're going to fail. This is all pointing us ahead to the fact that the law is there to point us to our need for a Savior. That we need Jesus who would perfectly obey God's law and who would die the death that they deserve to die. So we see all of that being pointed to here in Deuteronomy chapter 6. Yet even us on this side of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus can look back at this and see how how the commands here in Deuteronomy 6 certainly apply, are very applicable to us today as Christians. So, point number one is this, the good life. Deuteronomy 6, 1 through 5. Again, our culture's definition of the good life is something like people being freed up to do whatever they want to do and be whoever they want to be. By the way, that's not like a new thing. It's not like something that, that the older generation can kind of like shake their head and say, I don't know where the kids got this. It's very similar to kind of like those of you that grew up as children of the 60s. This is kind of your kind of hippie mindset as well. I'm going to be free to do, whoever, do whatever I want to do and be whoever I want to be. This is, a, this is a worldview that's not a brand new kind of worldview 
in this generation. A lot of retired people living with this worldview too. So it's not just, we don't want, this is not like one of those sermons where you're like, kids nowadays, I don't know about them. Um, all right, so verses one through three. In verses one through three, we heard, even as I was reading it just a bit ago, some descriptions of the good life that you might expect. Notice in verse two that it says, right at the end of the verse, that your days may be long. So living a long life, that is a kind of common description of what the good life looks like. A good long life, right? A, a life lived for a number of good long years. Verse 3 has another, uh, another few descriptions that we commonly hear. That it may go well with you. That you may multiply greatly. And again, that phrase, in a land flowing with milk and honey. Okay? So those are kinds of descriptions of the good life that we might expect to find. A good, long life in a good land, multiplying greatly, and that it all may go well with you. That seems like a good definition of the good life. But that's not all that Scripture has to say. Let's look at what else it has to say here in verses 1 through 5 about what the good life entails. It begins, in fact, in verse 1 with commandments. Now, this is the commandment, the statutes and the rules that the Lord your God commanded me, this is Moses, to teach you, that is Israel, that you may do them in the land to which you are going over to possess it. So, so there is this sense in which in order to go over to this land and possess it and live this kind of long, good, everything goes well kind of life, there is a need to hear these commandments and do them. Not just to go and live in a certain land, but to live in a certain land in a certain way, right? According to the rules, commandments, statutes of the God who created you, the God who made a covenant with you, and the God who promised the land to you. He's the same God who says, here's how you are to live in that land. So that's what we see there in Deuteronomy chapter 6, introduced there in verse 1. It also looks like this. The good life looks like this. Notice verse 2, that you may fear the Lord your God. Part of living the good life is that we would be people who fear the Lord our God. Not just us. Would you agree with me that this would be a good life? Not just us fearing the Lord God, but seeing the next generation and the generation after. The way it says it here is your son and your son's son. Those of you who have the privilege of being parents and or grandparents could agree that this is the kind of good life. I don't want just a kid who's going to like have a good job and make a lot of money. I want my kids to fear the Lord, to have a reverent awe and respect for who God is. That, that would be the good life. And then we go on. Again, that comes by keeping all of his statutes and his commandments, which I command you all the days of your life that your days may be long. And then there's this word that gets repeated twice. Once at the beginning of verse 3. Do you see that word at the beginning of verse 3? Hear, therefore, O Israel. Okay? One thing that's required if we want to live the good life is we need to hear from God what it is that the good life that we ought to be pursuing looks like. Hear, O Israel, is what it begins there in verse 3. Be careful to do them. All these things would come. Verse 4, it, be, it happens again. It starts with, hear, O Israel. 
And then the first thing after, after that statement there in verse 4, when he says, Hear, O Israel, this would be called the Shema. This is something that Jewish people would repeat over and over and over again, would be ingrained in them. And that is this, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Okay? Our God. And the nations around them had lots of other gods. The peoples around us have lots of other gods. But they're saying, no, the Lord our God, he is one. One God. He is the one and only God. The Lord our God, Yahweh, our God. That's what Yahweh, uh, we translated in English with all capital letters, Lord. Right? They're saying, our God, the God who has revealed himself to us, the God who has created all things and made a covenant with us, that God, he is the one true God. So part of the good life is knowing this, hearing from God who is the one and only God. So we need to hear God. We need to fear God. We need to know God. We need to obey God. And then verse 6, or 5, sorry, verse 5. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. So making a, a deliberate choice to value God above everything. So giving themselves, right? Heart, soul, might. I am giving myself to loving this God. Jesus would say this is the first and greatest commandment, right? That's the foundation of really all of the other commandments, a relationship with God characterized by love. Now, we know uh, as we get later in Scripture, and we see it already here, that this is a response to God's love for us. Even when you look at the Ten Commandments, you can flip back to Deuteronomy chapter 5. The Ten Commandments right before them comes, this is what God has done for you. Therefore, these are the commandments you are to follow. It begins, it's initiated by God. First John says, we love because he first loved us, right? So we have a God who has loved us and loved us enough to tell us how we are to live the good life in the land that he is providing, right? That's what's happening here. Here's what the good life looks like. Knowing God, loving God, fearing God, obeying God, hearing from God. Those are the kinds of things that characterize the good life, not according to our culture, but according to Scripture. So, this command, <laughs> what, a, what a great command, to love the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, mind, or heart, soul, and might. Isn't that a great command? I read this quote this week that I thought was really, really helpful uh, from A.J. Fernando. He says this, when God asks us to love him with our whole being, he has our own welfare in mind. It's like a command to someone who loves the beach to take a few days off to rest by the beach in order to recover from exhaustion. Or it's like a command to a hungry person to eat a delicious meal. Once we have experienced God's love and know what a wonderful thing it is, a command of total love would not be viewed as a burdensome obligation, right? This is a command that's like, well, that's exactly what God created us for. God knows that I'm going to be most happy for all of eternity, if my response to him is love. And so it's a command to love him with all I have, not because that will make my life miserable, but because this is what will give me the greatest joy. Loving God with all of my heart, soul, and might will give me joy. So God commands us to do something that we should say, well, yeah, what else would I want to do? But 
it's also a command because naturally, often because of our sinful nature, we like to love ourselves and love all sorts of other things more than God. So we need to hear this command. So that's the good life. Okay, Hearing God speak, knowing God, obeying his commands, fearing him, and loving him. That's the good life. So a question for us would be simply this. Are we living the good life? Are you living the good life? Now, when most of us would hear that, in our culture, people hear, they're, they're hearing the question, are you, are you living in a nice house? You got a good job? You driving a decent car? You got a good plan for a comfortable retirement? That's the good life, according to, are, are you free to do what you want to do and be who you want to be, right? That's our culture's definition of the good life. And so when I ask you, are you living the good life, that's not what I mean. I mean, have you heard God's word? Have you heard in God's word both the law that reminds you and shows you that you're a sinner? Have you heard the gospel, the good news that God has made a way for sinners to be reconciled to him through the perfect obedience and substitutionary death and resurrection of Jesus? This is the good life according to scripture. And if you're not confident that you are living the good life, if you're not living that kind of life, the kind of life where you've heard the gospel, believed it, you can say, I know God and I love God, then I would love to talk to you this week because the reality is that you're not living the good life and your eternal life will be infinitely more miserable than this life now. So all you have to do is just send me a text this week and says, I'm not sure I'm living the good life. Can we talk? I'd love to talk. But many of us are. We're not living the perfect life, right? But we are living the good life because we have heard from God's word that we're sinners and we need a savior. We have heard the good news of the gospel of here's what Christ has done for us. We've repented of our sin. We've put, it our, put our faith in Jesus. We know God. We fear him. We love him. And by the power of his spirit living in us, we desire to obey him. That's the good life. And it's all by God's grace. And if that's the good life, we're not selfish enough to like, I want the good life and I don't care what happens to anybody else, right? If we have the good life, we want the next generation to live that good life as well. Most everyone wants a good life for their kids. The problem is, most people in our culture and even in the church have bought into our culture's definition of the good life. And we're kind of living that out in front of our kids and I think we're confusing them. Because we're confused. So what we see in these verses 6 through 9, I think is very, again, helpful and applicable to us. Four things that the next generation needs. We're going to close with these four things that the next generation needs. I'm going to kind of just weave application right in with this rather than going to that at the end. So four things that the next generation needs. Verse 6. Verse 6 says this. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. The number one thing that the next generation needs is this. They need our generation to take all of this to heart. They need us, adults, to take God's commands seriously, to hear his word, to know him, to fear him, to love him, to obey him. They need us to take this to heart. 
you might know a song, uh, it was before my time, but it's been remade so many times because I think its message resounds through generations. 1974 is when the song originally came out, a song called Cats in the Cradle. It's a song from the perspective of a busy dad. You know the song? At the beginning of the song, it's a son who looks up to his dad and says, you know, I'm going to be like you, dad. But it's a dad who's busy and hasn't really taken the time or had the time to invest in a real relationship with his son. And the last verse says this, I've long since retired. My son's moved away. I called him up just the other day. I said, I'd like to see you, son, if you don't mind. He said, I'd love to, dad, if I could find the time. See, my new job's a hassle. The kids have the flu, but sure nice talking to you, Dad. It's been sure nice talking to you. And as I hung up the phone, it occurred to me, he'd grown up just like me. My boy was just like me. It's been 10 years ago now since a book came out uh, called Almost Christian, What the Faith of Our Teenagers is Telling the American Church. When I read it first, I was a youth pastor uh, and the father of two very young children at the time. It basically tells the same story as the cats in the cradle. Here's a quote from the book. Since the religious and spiritual choices of American teenagers echo with astonishing clarity the religious and spiritual choices of the adults who love them, lackadaisical faith is not young people's issue but ours. So we must assume that the solution lies not in beefing up congregational youth programs or making worship more cool and attractive, but in modeling the kind of mature, passionate faith we say we want young people to have. If we're looking at the next generation and saying, what happened there? We need to be looking in a mirror and saying, oh, that's what happened. As I hung up the phone, it occurred to me, my boy is just like, me. It's important for us to notice verse 6. What the next generation needs first and foremost is for us to take to heart God's word. They need uh, to see us living the good life, to be modeling for them. Here's what the good life looks like. Number two, they need us to teach them diligently or repeatedly. Number two, the number two thing the next generation needs is for us to teach them diligently and repeatedly. We see that right at the beginning of verse 7. You shall teach them diligently to your children. Your translation might say repeatedly. Teach them repeatedly or teach them diligently. It's a one-way kind of instruction. It's, a, it's an acknowledgement that I as an adult, as someone who loves and cares for you, maybe a parent, maybe a grandparent, God has revealed some things to me that it is my responsibility to relay onto you. I want to teach you diligently and repeatedly. If you're a parent, you know that we have to teach things repeatedly. You've probably uttered the phrase before, how many times do I have to tell you, right? Because it's something that we've said before, and apparently the answer to that question is, well, I guess a couple more times, right? Because our kids need to hear the truth, the message repeatedly. Because again, that message they're hearing from the world that you, you can do whatever you want to do and be whoever you want to be, and that's the most important thing. They're hearing that message repeatedly. And so they better be hearing a different message from us repeatedly to counteract that. Now, uh, I think a really important key, again, some application point. 
there needs to be a set-aside time in the day. Just like you set aside time, you're making sure your kids are brushing their teeth, you're making sure your kids are, like all these different things. A set-aside time, and when your kids are really little, this is like five minutes, right? A set-aside time where you are instructing your children. If you're a grandparent and your, kids, your grandkids come and stay with you, use some of that time. Get five minutes to your time together, 15 minutes maybe as they get older, a little bit longer. Uh, a couple of things that were really helpful for us when, uh, when we were parenting, I only brought one of them up here. That little book, my first book of questions and answers, been around for a long time. Super helpful uh, just to walk, even when our kids were like two and three, we started with that book. Um, a tool that's a little more up to date, also really helpful, uh, the New City Catechism, 52 questions and answers for our hearts and minds. Okay? Uh, this one also has not just a book form, but a free app that has songs that go with it. So really kind of helpful stuff, just basic questions and answers that help shape our kids' worldview um, from an early age. There should be a time of focused, repeated, diligent teaching coming from parents to children. The next generation needs that. They don't outgrow the need for that by the time they're 14 either. Number three. They need us to weave God into our everyday conversation. They need us to weave God into our everyday conversation. It can't just be like, oh, so there's this block of time, Awana or youth group, and then there's another block of time, Sunday school, worship service, and then there's this block of time for five minutes a day where God enters the conversation and he has nothing to do with the rest of life. No, our conversation about God needs to be weaved into everything that we do throughout the day. So, verse 7 continues, after saying you shall teach them diligently to your children, it says, and shall talk of them when you sit in your house. Hopefully you do sit in your house and do something other than watch a screen while you're sitting in your house. A meal time is a great time when a family can sit together in the house, and it would be a great kind of just principle generally. We're not going to have a screen on. We're not going to have a phone by us or a screen on somewhere else. We're going to sit together, and we're going to have conversation. And as God does a work in your life, that's what's going to come out as we spend time with our kids. So talking about them when we sit down and when we walk by the way. We don't walk as much. We're lazier, so we do a lot more driving now. Right? That's a great opportunity. When you're going from one place to another, find an opportunity to weave God into that conversation. When you lie down, that's at bedtime. When you rise up, that's at breakfast time. Right? Are we finding ways throughout the day that as God, and, and this is a great kind of level of, or measure of accountability really that being a parent gives us, gives us an opportunity. Well, I'm never really talking about God. Maybe it's because I'm never really thinking about God and I need to work on that again. These commandments today should be on your heart. It starts here and then it comes out uh, with our kids. Now, uh, verses 8 and 9. Oh, by the way, a couple of, of helpful books, uh, maybe uh, for kind of some of that, like not just here's a set amount of time, but, but just kind of weaving gospel truths into all of life. Um, this book called Family Discipleship by Chandler and Griffin just came out. I haven't finished it yet. It's really good. Another book that just came out, more aimed at women, called Risen Motherhood, Gospel Hope for Everyday Moments. Both of these do a really good job. I haven't read this because I'm not a mom, um, but Kirsten's read a lot of stuff from these authors, and it's really good. Um, and, uh, and so the idea of these being, it's not just those set-aside times. It's multiple moments throughout the day where we can see the truth of the gospel. It can be those like not so shining moments as a parent, 
where you have clearly sinned. And you just come before God and before your kids and just admit that. Did you hear a mom just respond to that? Did you hear a dad just respond to that? Did you hear how, that, how a dad and mom had that conversation? That wasn't honoring to God. And we just apologize to each other because we love each other and we forgave each other. And the best news is God forgives us too. Just conversations like that throughout the day. And then finally, verses 8 and 9. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. Kids, like uh, many adults as well, are visual learners. So to have reminders, not just in verbal reminders throughout the day, but, you know, maybe it's decorations in your house. It sounds like an advertisement for Hobby Lobby, right? Uh, <laughs> like, hey, Pastor Jeremy said we got to go to Hobby Lobby and buy some stuff. Uh, no, I didn't. Um, Right, so, so, so keeping visual reminders, in front, maybe it's a post-it note that you put on the mirror, whatever, stuff that kind of stays in front of us that reminds us of the things that we've seen as we've heard God's word. We've got to get done. So uh, let's just close with this. Are you concerned about the world that our kids are growing up in? I am. While we pray for them, which is primarily what we need to be doing, we also need to make sure that we ourselves have the right understanding of the good life. Committing ourselves to love, fear, and obey God while we teach kids often what God's word has to say and talk often about him throughout the day. We need help with that. We don't do it perfectly. Our hope is in Jesus, who did do everything perfectly. Uh, and we need to make sure our kids know that over and over again. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you for what you've entrusted to us. Um, thank you for the opportunity we'll have now in the second service to do a dedication and to, to just kind of have this, this uh, testimony publicly uh, from two different families to come and stand before the church and acknowledge that their child is a gift from God, to, to, uh, to commit publicly to model and teach and pray that their kids would come to know Jesus as Lord and Savior. God, it's our desire to raise our kids in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. And so God, we know that we need one another. Help us to be an encouragement to one another that we might be people who truly do love you with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Iowa Falls Evangelical Free Church. More information about Iowa Falls Evangelical Free Church can be found at our website, www.ifefree.org, or you can call the church office at 641-648-3305. That's www.ifefree.org or 641-648-3305.